Welcome to the Medicinage podcast. I'm Imogen, an aspiring medic and A-level student, here to bring you the best people with knowledge and insight on how to get into med school, how to become a doctor, and to help you decide whether a career in medicine is for you. I'm here today with Aidan Khan, who is currently studying medicine at Kent Medway Medical School and is also a YouTube content creator. We'll hear more about that later. Welcome to the podcast, Aidan. It's great to have you on here. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's, yeah, it's great to see you uh, having a podcast and tailoring towards the target audience that you're great. So yeah, it's great to see and be in the space. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming on. So let's get straight into it. What was your motivation to get into medicine? Obviously, it's a very common interview question, but it's it's always a good one to ask. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it is one of those questions that is slightly weird and also sometimes has a proper answer uh, in terms of, oh, would I be able to get in uh, to medical school with the answer or not? But I think generally speaking, otherwise, I will always have been into science in general ever since school. Science was academically my strongest subject and passionately the one I was most interested in. And when it came to being able to see, okay, what avenues can I actually go into when it comes to um, choosing A-levels or even which um, degree I want to do in university, Medicine was, was something that actually interested me in both the course curriculum and what it can bring after graduation. Both the course curriculum I realized was more flexible in the sense that it gives a lot more opportunities to students, both as a patient interactions and other academic fields like research opportunities or areas of uh, innovation if you are interested and wanted to pursue it, which can easily be broadened up once you graduate and start becoming and working uh, towards your um, medical career. So those other avenues was something that interested me as something that I could do alongside medicine. Yeah, that's really good. And I mean, yeah, a lot of people have said the science is a very kind of standard how you get into medicine, how you kind of get into that pathway of thinking about medicine. And I mean, it's very important because you're doing a lot of science, aren't you? So yeah, that's really good. And once you decided you wanted to do medicine, um, obviously you're at Kent Medway Medical School or KMMS and so what stood out to you about that university compared to others? I think the first thing was that because when I was applying to it it was one of the new universities that was uh, going to be inviting students to study medicine and that in itself had a certain appeal to it because if it's a new university that means that you're more likely to be listened to. Of course that's not denying that other medical schools or other institutes do listen to what the student body has to say, but it's more so about the urgency or the uh, feedback that we say will be acting, acted upon straight away or we will be able to see the results of them while still being in the institute versus for a couple of years down the line where we would have graduated and then seen what uh, the students would have actually been wanting to. So that's one of the things where it felt like a, a bit more of a personal touch if we were to be able to go into it. And I suppose in terms of proximity as well, that fit in in that criteria, because as a Londoner, I wanted to either study in London or be in cross proximity with it. And Kenton Medway was one of those universities that it simply just fit the bill, really. And I guess circumstances also fell uh, into place because I was also the year where peak COVID hit. And uh, I mean, the algorithm did affect my grades, which, uh, which did affect my place at Cambridge. However, even after the U-turn with uh, the government, um, even before it, really, uh, KMMS was already giving me an offer for uh, medicine. So that really just did uh, push towards 
intimate with saying that they do care about the students more versus just the grades. So yeah, it's a combination of everything. Yeah, that sounds really good because looking at open days and looking at how universities rank certain things to for you to get in and give you an offer, it is interesting to see how some don't even look at your personal statement even before or during or after the interview like they don't care at all so it's like well what's the point in writing one but if you're saying they look at the kind of personal side to you and you as a person not just grades on a spreadsheet then that's really encouraging that would definitely appeal to me as well and so you've spoken about the course structure a little bit could you explain a bit more about the learning style and the course structure at KMMS? So it's uh, innovative let's to say the least um, you have a bit more of a traditional approach where it's preclinical and clinical divide, but within the preclinical years, you also have placements within it. For the first few years, you have the opportunity to go into GP placements for six weeks spread across for the whole year. And that would give you the opportunity to look at Kent as a demographic, because you can easily be placed anyway in Kent. Um, and that in itself brings both interesting challenges and experiences because within even a PCN, PCN being a collection of GP surgeries in that certain area. So for example, um, Ashford, uh, which is one of the cities in Kent, that in itself will have a PCN, which will be a collection of three to four PCNs. It could be even more depending on the population. But within each PCN, there will be different demographics of people, both in terms of social class, education class, or um, any sort of um, differentiating factor. And that means that they'll have their own unique experiences to showcase once they come do come to these GP surgery to express their concern or diseases at the same time, which you should be able to tackle and be able to deal with patients, not only as a biological level, but at the personal level. So yeah, it just gives a bit more of an experience in that regard, that once you do want to become junior doctors or pursue into a GP ship, you are aware of people from all over the, um, the different demographics and different um, circumstances of different walks of life um yeah and then clinical years start clinical years where you would have which would have an initially 20 percent clinical and 80 percent campus life lectures workshops seminars years three to five then become 80 uh, percent clinical and 20 percent campus life so majority of the years throughout you will be hospital based and that's where you can do specialist rotations like psychiatry cardiology um respiratory you know, and it will essentially be more tailored towards hospital-based foundation training, where you in even in foundation training, you'll have different rotations. And that would just be a bit more of a introduction to be able to see what life as a foundation doctor at a hospital would be like. Um, yeah, that's pretty much the structure of things. Yeah, that sounds really good. I mean, you said, first of all, it's innovative yeah. and how you still have placements, so it's not completely nothing and then everything. So that's that's a good thing to it as well and you saying about the different demographics I mean it's so true isn't it when you're when you become a doctor you're not necessarily going to be looking after the exact same patient every time so it's good to have a wide variety of um, practice with different kinds of patients different ages etc so that sounds really really good and with all that how have you found your time at uni so far yeah it's it's been great so far um like just as I've, I've slightly touched on that, it does give a personal feel to um, being in the institution, which if I had gone to any other pre-established institution, I wouldn't be able to get. In the sense that in terms of both the administrative staff and the lecturers, 
as well, know me as a person, and majority of the time we're on the first name basis, even. And I would have, I do appreciate because I would know full-heartedly that I'm having friends from other uh, med schools, I would not be able to have that same thing because um, because there are other institutes that are certainly over-prescribed uh, in for the lack of the better term. And having that personal touch to things wouldn't be there if I wouldn't have gone to KMMS. And that in itself gives lots of other opportunities in the sense that, uh, for example, I was speaking to one of my lecturers the other day and I just gently talked, I told him that I'm into AI and ML, so artificial intelligence and machine learning in medicine. And he was listening to me and a couple of days later, he just emailed me saying, oh, we, I have a research opportunity for you uh, regarding AI and ML, would you like to get into it? Because he already knew I was into research. And having that simple gesture is like, groundbreaking in itself for, for a student like me because for him that's just him writing an email and asking for whether I would like to be involved in it but that's for me that's him actually listening and paying attention to the things that I've been um, I've been talking about and yeah it's just gratifying in that sense oh that's so good and it's so true I can mm. totally understand if your lecturers know who you are listen to what you say and follow up on that that's so good and you're like oh I, they actually know who I am I'm an actual person so yeah, all of that that you said about the whole personal side does sound really, really good. And I mean, it makes you want to learn more. And that also potentially helps you think, okay, well, they're listening to me, they're doing this, this, their body language, and then that can potentially maybe help you think how to be a better doctor as well, because obviously good listening skills and following up is a part of that as well. So going back to placements, you said you've done a few placements now, and I usually ask people what their most gory story is. I'm going to change it a little bit because sometimes it can get a bit dark. Um, what's been your most memorable story from placement so far? That's an easy one for me, actually. Um, first week of placement on the very first placement that I uh, had to do. First day, everything was fine. You know, great introduction to things. So my supervisor was great. And uh, my group was great as well. On the way back, when we were all waiting for the bus to get to the train. Uh, it was late. It was dark. Um, and... All of a sudden, we were waiting. It was it was raining as well. We we hear, uh, and the good thing is that our stop is right in front of the GP surgery, but we hear someone crying out for help. And then, uh, when we saw is that a person from uh, who was initially in a mobility scooter fell off with a mobility scooter over him, and serendipitously, we would not be able to go out and help him if uh, the bus that we were supposed to get was uh, arrived because the bus that we were supposed to get um, was coming late. So that in itself was just circumstances put in exactly. And I mean, obviously, um, the, the whole uh, the whole situation of him falling over should not have happened. But because it has ha it had happened and we, because we were there, we were able to help him. Um, we were obviously in the circumstances like those. It's best not to move uh, things like that. It was just more so Best to call out for help, which fortunately our GP surgery was just there, so we called out for help. We called for the ambulance to come in, asked for who the who the person was, if they were in any medications, more specifically any blood burning medications, because that is one of the crucial things. Since he was he did injure himself and he was bleeding, uh, fortunately we were able to bring him back into the GP surgery, uh, tend to his um, wounds because my GP surgery at that time had the facility to do minor surgeries, and yeah. Um, Obviously, it was too late for us to do anything. Um, but the next day, we were 
uh, told that the person was doing great and he was more thankful uh, for us being there. And yeah, that, that still sticks to me because it's just gratifying, on, especially on the first day of how bizarre it all happened. I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's my experience. That's great. That's amazing. That's a really good, really good story because it's not necessarily actually in your placement. It was after mm. and it's good that med school and being, being in a place like that, obviously you're learning what questions to ask because that's what you need to do when you're a doctor, but also the teamwork with the other people you were with waiting for the bus. That's so good that you managed to be able to help this person and use those skills in a non-clinical setting. And yeah, it's transferable, isn't it? So that's, that's really, really good. I like that story. And so moving on to a slightly different side of what you're interested in, um, you're very interested in health and innovation and that kind of thing. So what things or technology can help to bring those two together? I think the, the technology that we already have already brings those two fields together. Like things like our smartphone, our laptop that we use, any variables that we have, they already facilitate to bridge that gap because you have organizations like Google, YouTube, or Apple who are forming their own medical bodies or medical uh, companies as an offshoot and are recruiting CMOs, chief medical officers, who are qualified doctors who have done medicine, graduated, did the foundation training, but also have wanted to be a bit more on a corporate side. And they're recruiting and they're looking for them. And it's, mind you, I mean, apart from being pay being a lot higher than um, their medical doctor uh, counterpart, they are already technologies that do that for us, that facilitate a lot of health concerns or any immediate actions that needs to be taken when it comes to the biological factors. I mean, there's also, there have been a lot of advertisements from Apple Watch, let's say, um, that they are able to detect any heart attacks or any irregularities, or even if someone who's a bit more adventurous and they've fallen off their bike on, in the middle of a forest, they're able to send signals like that to the emergency services. Things like that are already in, the, in place, and it can only be advanced more as the technology advances and facilitated better and in a bit more of a convenience manner. And you could also say that there's lots of health apps within our phone. Um, these mHealth mobile health applications can not only give a bit more for longevity towards access to care, but also be, make it sustainable rather than just having to always call your G local GP or having to contact the um, consultant secretary to book or do any, find out any other information. You can easily open the uh, access all of those information. And it just app already does that. And but however, I would still say that it's in its early phases where you aren't able to have full uh, accessibility towards all of the information that you need. But it's still getting there. And I would say it will eventually get to. The other argument could be that for a certain demographic or a certain uh, segment of people might find it a bit more annoying um, that oh everything is becoming technology based or everything's becoming more digital. And I don't know digital things. How am I supposed to help around that? Well, the argument to that is simply if a technology is advancing, the adaptability and usage of such technology is also advancing alongside with it as well. Say, for example, um, when diesel cars was brought up to be, the adaptability for the whole world to start using it took 30 years. But once when the first smartphone came out, it took only 10 years for everyone to start using it. And now when we have applications with using AI, ML, RVR, virtual reality. It's only taking five years for people to integrate that. 
So as new things come, do come out, people are using it a lot more readily and a lot more feasibly and in a faster process. So yeah, um, that's my um, long ramble to the question. No, I really like that about how we can use the technology we already have. I mean, it's so true. We kind of take it for for granted because literally we're on laptops here, got our phones, got mm. Apple Watches or Fitbits or something like that. And I like what you said about the fact they can see if someone's having heart problems or where they are and they've stopped moving. I mean, it's so true, isn't it? I mean, obviously there's sometimes a bit of a maybe data breach, something like that. But I mean, it is a really, really good idea and things like that why wouldn't you use it if you've already got it and it, uh, loads of people are using those things and about adaptability as well i mean adaptability is exponentially growing it's definitely going everyone can use things a lot faster as the years go on and i feel like in a few years everyone will just use things in seconds don't they pretty much i think um but that's also a good thing as you say because people can adapt to it in learn how to use these things and hopefully that will help with their health as well depending on what it is so mm. yeah I really like that answer that's really good um another thing you do is you have created a thing called Veritas Learners so what is that why did you decide to create that tell us more yeah it's it's an organization that um, um I've made which rose because of mainly COVID where A levels were cancelled and I really had nothing else to do and that's when I started to learn to code started to learn to uh, know more about graphic design user experience UI and such things like that but I suppose that that's more of a corporate side of things as to why, why I decided to make such a startup and get into that as well but the main reason or the main precursor to me even getting into that was because it's it's a tutoring agency um, for the lack of a better term and the spark was came when I started sixth form and I started mentoring students from my school because it had a secondary and a sixth form joint. So ever since year 12, I started to mentor year 10s and year 11s on play GCSE because I didn't go to the best academically, um, or an academically strong school. So I wanted to also give my, the tricks of the trade to get me the grades that I got for my GCSE to the younger generation who were just recently also doing the GCSE as well. So that gave them a bit more of an advantage as a peer-to-peer -peer mentoring. That I'm someone who just did the GCSE. I'll be the best person to ask outside of the teachers. Um, and yeah, that grew out once I started to do year 13 to the point where um, during my free sessions, uh, my supervised learning, I used to go to my um, do the year 12 classes and did a couple of lectures for them, uh, well, uh, classes for them um, as a support teacher for, I mean, it wasn't really an official title, but yeah. And then COVID had everything stopped everything became digital and that just made me think that it's not fair especially for students who don't already have resources available to them and that's where the scale, i wanted to scale it upwards so that as many students as possible would be able to get the support that they need as fast as possible as well and yeah that's where veritas learners came to be where uh, veritas meaning truth um so true learners uh, that's the whole inspiration of the name and yeah it's the whole idea of how it's an agency supporting students on a tutoring basis from university students themselves based on the subjects that they're doing. That's great. I really like that. I mean, we've mentioned on the podcast before about how teaching is the best way to learn. Mm. And maybe if you're in A-levels, you're not necessarily learning extra, but it's still helping you revisit that content, isn't it, in your mind if you're teaching younger years. 
and I mean I do it with my sister I've mentioned this before because she's just doing GCSEs this year and I've just done them and we're doing the exact same subjects so I can help her with that and I mean I can see exactly how it would help both people and it's a really good way of mentoring and tutoring so I think I think that's a great idea and true learners it's a good it's a good title um on to another thing you, you do everyone I have on the podcast must be so busy honestly everyone's involved in so many things but you are also part of diversity in medical academia so I mean we hear a lot about how presentation representation matters and things like that so why do you think that diversity is important in medicine yeah great question so diversity in itself should be important anyways because if in medicine the whole basis of medicine is taking care of people and as i mentioned before people have their own experiences have their own certain pathways of life have their own backgrounds and that means for it to be truly patient-centered you have to have diversity in mind um, there's lots of dermatological uh, diseases but if you look at your standard textbook you will only have a certain skin tone present. Uh, you would, so you would not be able to see how does this disease would be presented in a certain, with a patient with a different skin tone. And it does vary quite a lot. Um, with, even with that example I gave, there have been already certain steps on towards um, diversity. There's a book called Mind the Gap, I believe, which was published by another fellow medical student from St. George's that is a dermatological book to showcase how do certain symptoms uh, not even um, dermatological diseases, but certain symptoms for any disease can represent on a darker skin tone. And that has become an official book as well now at this stage. So I am pleased that how universities and other institutes are adopting it. But it is still important in the sense that um, I, I can I can share how diversity in medical in, in medical academia BIMA, came to be. Um, when I was applying to medicine, you had to always visit conferences or other talks to showcase the you've done extracurricular um, activities. What I noticed over um, the course of having visited quite a few of them is that the speakers were always of a certain demographic. I always, uh, that sort of a thought always came, it stuck to my mind, and once I did start medical school, I came to realise the main reason for that is because students, whether that be medical students or any students in university, do not know how to best approach research. I do not know how to access medical resources that are tailored towards research. And even if they do get started in research, they don't know how to best approach it in terms of making sure that it's finished effectively or in a time-efficient manner. So there could be instances where they start it, uh, get discouraged, and then might not finish it. And that's mainly the um, reason why there isn't as much of a representation. But obviously, that's not the main, but that's one of the factors that I've seen anecdotally. And that's where Lima came to be, where it wants to be the pathway to separate, uh, to not, to close the gap, or at least try to reduce it for underrepresented students who want to pursue research, medical research, and by providing them talks and events. Um, we have been now started to host a monthly events so far, and has, that has become a regular thing. And the engagement from audience has been wonderful in terms of both questions, as well as just saying statements. Even I have, we have seen a variety of um, audience members from years one to five, and especially year five students saying that, oh, I don't know, you could also do research like that. And that in itself just sparks the idea that, yeah, this is something like this is needed. And 
yeah, that's that's what we've been doing so far. We have now been able to grow to double the size that we were now. And now it's somewhat become to the point where we have members of Diva from all over the world, one in particular, both America and Italy. Um, so that's really exciting in that sense. Mm. More on an institution level, what you would find out if you would, if you would like to actually look into it as well is that a lot of research, uh, the clinical trials that um, are conducted, the participants there, are not fully diverse in itself. There's always certain um, demogra- uh, certain um, categories of people, certain characteristics, I would say, that are excluded. excluded. I mean, obviously, don't always look at the ones uh, that are only targeting a certain demographic to begin with. But things like... It, here's an interesting example. My biomedical lecturer was telling me about one of the drugs that he was um, part of for the, for the clinical trial. And everything was working great. Everything was, you know, good. And all of a sudden, once they do manufacture manufacturing all over the world, what they realized was that certain country in Scandinavia, the drug was ineffective because they didn't account for the genes for that uh, particular population. So that means that, okay, these drugs do work on everyone else apart from a certain population. And that just means that, okay, we just need to make sure that when any drug trials or any other clinical trials are being tested. It needs to be assured that once it works to a particular human being, it should work for any human being. And yeah, um, otherwise there will be lots of financial implications and um, it will just mean that the, well, whoever needed that drug will have to wait a lot longer for it to be manufactured and for it to be accessible for, forced to, uh, for purchase or to be gotten from the uh, healthcare service. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about some of those things obviously about um, diagrams and textbooks and maybe models that can usually just show one certain group. And that is, yeah, I think that's fair enough to say. And it's interesting you said about the dermatological conditions. I hadn't thought about that again, but it's really interesting and hearing about the the participation in trials. Yeah, um, wow, the whole thing, like missing out a whole group um that's that's really interesting and obviously as you say the kind of economical no like socio-economic side to it and you can miss out certain groups like yeah that that's cool I've learned a lot I really really like that answer thank you um yeah that's great so and sorry (laughs) so another thing you do is you are a YouTube content creator and so kind of what do you do with that? And what do you, what would you suggest to other medical students who want to start their own kind of content creation account? So, I, I mean, ever since school, um, you, I watched a lot of YouTubers, you know, um, and I always wanted to have something similar to get done, but that mine just never came to an affection really. Um, however, Again, it, it all revolves around um, COVID, how my creativity side, how my creative side just came into action. Because in terms of the academic side of things, that was on a back pedestal because of the circumstances. But um, I was still able to get into placements when, as, as a medical student because I was classed as a key worker, even during peak pandemic, where everyone was, there were penalties to even get outside. So that just made me think that it's peak lockdown. No one's allowed to leave, but there's all um able to still travel, be able to go to a basement and potentially also be able to see patients in a worst case scenario as well. 
why don't I just document my experience there, both traveling, getting to the placement, my day in the placement, and my reflections afterwards. And so that could be more of a journey for anyone watching it or listening it, so that they can be tagged along this or in a shared experience, for more or less. And yeah, that's when that's how it started off with, and then it branched out to other things like productivity, studying, uh, and things of that nature. Um, I think the general rule is that if uh, your target audience should always be one, obviously, of the things that you're interested in or would like to showcase, but be at the very maximum three years younger than you. And that somewhat opens the things for them because you have the most recent experience of whoever your target audience is, um, that individual is going through. And you can easily just share, again, the tips of the trade and be able to say, oh, perhaps you could do this as well. And suggest these different guidances that they could actually potentially do and doesn't have to, but they could even like it. Yeah, starting off with that um, is, I would say, is the easiest way to go with, but I am a strong advocate for personal branding, generally speaking, and sh showcasing the things that you are good at or even like doing to others. Because even if you don't actually uh, want to believe in personal branding or aren't actively pursuing it, there is a subconscious factors or marks that others already associate you with. For example, if you have a friend who is always late to meetings or to hangouts, you would associate them always being late. That's their personal brand. So instead of doing that, doing things un uh, subconsciously, you could always just control the narrative and do things that you're more interested in, that you like doing. So you can have those sorts of associations with you. So, and it doesn't even have to be YouTube channel or any other video format. It could be in other, for, um, in other mediums, like that be um, photo content, whether you're into photography, or if you're more so interested in writing blogs, articles. And so I think places like Medium is also good at that. Um, yeah, there's lots of different uh, formats in which you can actually showcase that. If you even have a bit more of a time, you can easily convert those blogs and articles into somewhat of a regular um, newsletter and have that sort of engagement through in that format. I mean, the idea is that as long as you're providing value to one person, then it's more than worth it. That's, yeah. Yeah, I really like that. That's really good and about the whole personal brand. I feel like that can be missed out sometimes. So that's a really good point to make. And how no matter what, whether it's YouTube, all the other different ways you can make content, as you said, just put yourself out there and make a, I think what I got from what you just said is make a conscious effort of what you're putting out as yourself, like with the personal branding and um, about, well, you kind of started, didn't you, with um, showcasing your day, what you did at placement, so kind of day in the life, I think you'd call it on Reels and TikTok now. So I, I really like those. I've done a few of those actually. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to start because you can just show a bit about your day and it's not necessarily too much and you're not saying oh look I have I know all this stuff about productivity or time management or something like that you're kind of just saying this is what I'm doing I'm not telling you what to do I mean yeah you know what I'm saying it's 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 a nice simple way to get started with it and I, I would say that's that's definitely a good way to do it actually so finally I just said we don't want to talk about um time management but we are going to talk about that um what are your top three tips on uh, time management and work-life balance because it's mentioned a lot within medicine and if you're involved with so many different things how can you juggle that yeah i think the first thing i would like to talk about would be prioritization knowing what the things are that you would like to pursue whether that be things of interest 
things that you have a bit more for leisure down with, things that you just genuinely like. It doesn't have to be academic or it doesn't have to be something that's up for high energy. Have a combination of those and then seeing what are you able to do to begin with. There's a whole um, model of um, patient care called the biopsychosocial model uh, that's been taught in medical school. That's more tailored towards patient care to make sure that your approach to both questioning, treatment, and uh, post-consultation is holistic so that you're covering all different aspects of how their concern affects their body. I like to have a different spin to it and instead say, how are these activities affecting you, both in your mental health, your social life, and your physical well-being? If it's getting in the way of any of them, perhaps some a change needs to be made. What that change could be is obviously it's personal to you and have to be directed based on your own conscious effort, whether that be just reducing the time on some other activities or completely stopping one of them, if that is uh, of a really great priority. Of course, prioritization in itself would be different to different individuals. So it's not really a blanket template that, oh, these are the things that you need to prioritize on. Individuals need to, first of all, see what are the things that they would like to, prior to prioritize in a day-to-day -day basis or generally in a whole week and then set things off from there to see what activities suit that best and doesn't get over that whole biopsychosocial model to make sure not only are you doing the activities that you would like to pursue, but also you're keeping your own sanity yeah, in check. The other tip would be a bit more of a organization, a time framework. Uh, there's something called the energy-driven timetable, where it's, say you have a, a sensible you would have formed a traditional timetable where you, where you have things or any tasks based on the times and the days that you're free in. That's sure, that does give you, okay, these are the things that I could potentially do when I'm free. But I would, but that doesn't always seem to be the case, I'm sure you would have realised, that you might write something down on a free time or you'd like to do some, some a task within that specific time frame. That doesn't normally happen because it's not tailored to you fully. It's more tailored towards the time, sure, but it's not tailored towards you in the sense that whether if you have the energy for it. So looking and judging based on the tasks at how much um, energy consumption they have would be a bit more of a better approach to things because some tasks obviously will have will require more energy or more um, activity of the brain to make sure that it's completed, irrelevant of how long it is. Because I'm sure you would also agree that there are certain shorter tasks that would still require more brain power and you will still be tired and you know, drained out at the end of the day. So having those type of tasks, layering them out based on how much energy is required, that could be any sort of rating one to five um, emojis, uh, P1 to P5 in terms of any sort of um, framework and any sort of key that you're good at. And then base it around, base your day, base your week around that. Maybe you could have lots of shorter I'm sorry, lots of small energy-based tasks on a particular day because that's your uh, chill day, let's say, or have a couple of more longer, uh, more strenuous tasks on a, another day because that's your focus day. Or however layout or however um, organized manner that you'd like to have, as long as it's working for you, that's what counts. Ali Abdal has a bit more of a dedicated video on that. I think he calls it the energy portfolio. So uh, that's a bit more of a business-like uh, terminology, but if anyone would like to have a bit more of a depth beyond what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's another thing that you can actually watch to be able to see it being illustrated as well. And the last tip I'll give would be saying no. No in itself is more powerful than you may realize. 
a lot of people say yes initially out of the fear that any opportunity that is presented to them might not ever come back if they do say no. Even if they do, um, if even if they are too busy in that particular moment, they will still say yes out of simply that fear, or formal of missing out. Um, it can't be far from the truth, honestly speaking. Mainly because that obviously you don't just simply decline them by saying and be that about your day. Thank them sincerely, for example, that you you presenting them so you are presenting me with such an opportunity. See so that you will have to politely decline, let's say, at this particular time. And express that you are still keen or you're still interested in the idea or the concept that they are proposing you with and that you'll like to do it at some point later down the line when that could be that well, that will obviously depend on your circumstances and that last statement is the more important bit where you're still saying that you're interested in it that you're keen about it and you like to pursue it it's just that at this moment that might not be the best why because a lot of people forget that if someone is coming to you with an opportunity to, for you to take part in it means that at the initial level, they're already suited for the task. It could be the same analogy where if you have sent off your application for medicine, now you're waiting for interviews to come. If an interview has come, congratulations. That means on a paper, you are already accepted. They're just waiting to see you, who you are as a person and in person. It's the same analogy as that. So that suitability doesn't really go away if you say no. It just means that it's postponed. Where at the point where you are able to have more time and be able to present with and do tasks at a level where you're most productive with so you can get the most out of the opportunity yourself and have an end result that you're more um, pleased with. Yeah, that's pretty much that. No, I really think, I think that's such good advice. I haven't heard about, I mean, I've done it a little bit, but I haven't heard about the kind of prioritising your task on on energy consumption level so for example maths easy easy number one chemistry five absolutely horrible um <laughs> you could rank it like that I really like that idea I think that's really sensible because as you say people could put time restraints on things how long it's actually going to take but folding socks could take you an hour but it's not necessarily going to be very mentally challenging and you might not be that tired afterwards so yeah, I think that's a really good way of prioritizing things. And then you can think, well, in the evening, I'm going to be a bit more tired. So I'm not going to do my really, really intense task then. So yeah, that's, that's such a good suggestion. And say no, that's a really interesting one. Because as you say, you do hear a lot of people say, say yes, put your hand up to everything, just do it. But yeah, it's true. Sometimes you do need to take a step back. And especially in medicine, when it's so intense on its own even without anything extra it's it, yeah I can see why it's a good idea to just say no actually I'll come back to this later I'm not going to do it right now so yeah that's a great suggestion thank you so much for being on the podcast today oh, thank you very much for having me it was a great chat yeah brilliant thank you that's all today from the Medicinity podcast thank you for listening and join us next week Make sure to recommend this episode to any aspiring medics.